Would you please join me as we take our Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 3. I want to begin reading at verse 16 and read through the end of verse 19. So if you'll just follow along, listening as I read, beginning at verse 16 of Genesis chapter 3. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is God's word. Before we pray, you'll see a picture of Mount Washington First Christian Church as they worship today. Let's pray for them as we pray for ourselves and the hearing of God's word. So would you bow your heads with me and let's just take a moment. You know, you may be here today and you say, well, uh, I don't know how this is going to help me. I mean, my needs are this or that or I've got this going on. I really, I really don't know how this particular text can help me. So I just want to ask you to do this. If you're courageous enough to do so, you just say, Lord, uh, if there's something that I need to hear today, that I'm not seeing. There's something about myself that I'm just not seeing. Would you help me? You might say, Lord, help me to see myself truly today. Not as I think I am or like to present myself, but how am I really? Help me to see myself. Secondly, Lord, help me to see my need. If I'm one of your sheep, I have need of sanctification. You're working in me and there's things that need to change. So, Lord, help me to see my need. If I'm not one of yours here today, Lord, help me to see that need as well. And then finally, Lord, would you, would you help me to see Jesus? Not just as an historical figure, an abstract figure in history, but a risen Savior who is able to help me, who's able to come by his Spirit and live within me. Help me to see Jesus and to see him in such a profound way that I want to follow him. I want to follow him. I want to obey him. I want to walk in his steps. So we pray that for ourselves today and for the good folks at First Christian as they sit under the preaching of your word. And we pray this for the sake of Christ. Amen. Over the last few weeks, we've been doing a brief series on marriage, the gift of marriage. Next Sunday, we're going to shift over to the gift of singleness. Because sometimes as single men and women in the church, they wonder sometimes, where do I fit? Where do I fit in God's world? Where do I fit in God's church? And sometimes you're even left with the impression of the church is just for married people, and that's not the case at all. And so we're going to look and see about the gift of singleness, what God has to say about that next Sunday. But today we're continuing on the gift of marriage, and here's what we're looking at in particular today. It's a question. Why is marriage sometimes hard? As you hear that, you might be thinking the same thing a friend of mine thought. I was, Catherine and I were out driving the other day, and um, my phone rang. It's a preacher friend of mine, and we were talking about some matters, and he, he just said, what are you going to be preaching this Sunday? You know, that's, that's what preachers do. We, you know, I said, what are you going to be preaching this Sunday? 
Um, so I said, well, I'm in a series on marriage, and uh, a topic is um, ma- marriage, but the title is Why is Marriage Sometimes Hard? And he goes, Sometimes? <laughs> and I thought, I knew, I knew he was going to say that. I knew it because I struggled with the title this week because I, I wanted to say, I thought about saying, Why is Marriage Always Hard? And then I thought, well, it's, you know, it's, there's ebbs and flows. It's not always as hard as sometimes. And so I struggled with the title, so I just ended up with Why is Marriage Sometimes Hard? Or you could say, why is, sometimes, why is marriage sometimes very hard? I mean, you just, just fill it in whatever way you want to. But why is marriage, why is marriage sometimes hard? Um, you probably heard uh, the, the little story about the kangaroo that kept jumping out of its enclosure at the zoo. They couldn't keep him in. So they finally um, they built the enclosure 10 foot high. And the next morning they came in and he had jumped out and he was all around the zoo playing around. And so... I thought, well, you know, we got to get down to business, and so they built the fence 20 foot high, and he still jumped out. And uh, they built it 30 foot high, he still jumped out. And finally, when they built it 40 foot high, a camel uh, in the next enclosure came over to the kangaroo and said, "How how how, how do you think they're going to go with this?" And he said, "Well, 100 foot, unless they learn to shut the door at night." <laughs> <laughs> and the point of that story, I mean, it's been around for a long time. The point of that is missing the obvious. They missed the obvious. I mean, it wasn't, the, it wasn't the height of the fence. It was the gate. The gate wasn't shut. It wasn't locked. And so it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a story about missing the obvious. And um, it made me think about a man who lives in Rhode Island. His name is John Devaney. He brought a lawsuit against the local Catholic church in his community. He wanted the court to force the church to silence their church bells. Now you say, why? Well, he went to the task of counting how many times the bells gonged every week. And they gonged 700 times per week, which equated into 36,000 times per year. Now, why was that a big deal? Well, he said in his lawsuit, the noise had caused emotional distress, bad moods, and arguments with his wife, contributing to the end of their marriage. So understand, he, he brought a lawsuit against the church and said, it's the bell's fault that I'm in such a bad mood and that my wife and I fight. And that's what led to the demise of our marriage. And I thought, Mr. Devaney, you you missed the obvious. You missed the obvious. You see, why is marriage so hard? Is it really because of loud church bells? Is it really? Probably not. Is it really because of his poor communication? Is it really because of her complaining? No. That's That's not really why marriage is sometimes hard. No, it's because of an event it's an event. Why is marriage so hard? It's because of an event, an historical event that actually took place and is recorded in Genesis chapter 3. It is so important that we understand this event because if we miss this event, or another way of saying it is if we miss the root cause of a hardship of marriage, or let's just go ahead and say it, Any relationship, any human relationship is affected by this root cause, by this event. Any and all relationships, in fact, let's just say it this way. All of our suffering, all of our suffering, all of our heartache, all of our difficulties in life, all of our troubles in life come back to this event. And if we miss this, if we miss this root cause... We will never embrace our eventual remedy, no matter how sincere we are. 
So what is this event that I speak of? What is this root cause? Well, before I lay it out, let me just say this. You know, we've already stated that Christian marriage occupies an exalted place in life. Last Sunday, if you'll remember, we said that covenant marriage, covenant marriage is intended to be a visual of Christ and his bride, the church. Now, what does that mean? Our marriages, a Christian marriage is like a little mini platform of the gospel. A Christian marriage is like a mini platform that displays the relationship between Christ and his church. We went over this last week. You can go back and listen. Ephesians chapter 5, this is what Paul tells us. We don't always see it that way. We don't understand. That's why we need to be told. It needs to be revealed to us that a Christian marriage is a little mini platform of the gospel of the relationship between Christ and his church. So marriage has an exalted position. But how does the Bible, the same Bible that tells us this, how does the Bible account for the tears, the betrayals, and the injuries within our marriages? Or ask it this way, why are there so many whose joyous romance dissolves into bitter alienation? Why is that? Why does marriage have such a high exalted position and at the same time, that same marriage can begin with a joyful romance and deteriorate in bitter alienation? What is the root cause for this? Or as we're asking, why is marriage sometimes so very hard? Well, in our text today, if you still have your Bibles open, and I hope you do, God is speaking. God is speaking, and he is speaking in the aftermath of the event that I want to talk to you about. What is the event? What is the root cause that makes marriage and all other relationships and all other things in life so hard? What is it? Theologians call it the fall. The fall. It is recorded in Genesis chapter 3, the fall. Why is it called the fall? Because you won't find those words in the Bible. So why is it called the fall? And it's called the fall for this reason. In Genesis 1 and 2, you find God creating a very good creation. In Genesis chapter 3, we find Adam and Eve being seduced and tempted by the serpent And they disobey God. And what happens is they fall. It is a tumble from our original glory down into our present sin, misery, and death. That is the fall. It's a tumble. Original glory, disobey God, tumbled, fell down into sin, misery, and death. Here's the thing I want you to see. It was in marriage. And by the way, marriage at its best. You go back to pre-fall marriage at its best. And so keep in mind, marriage at its best was when the human race came under evil attack and fell into all of the miseries of our present condition. Marriage at its best attacked fall. Adam and Eve, as a married couple, fell prey to the seduction of the enemy. They went on to ignore and disobey God's blueprint for blessing. Basically, Adam and Eve said this, no thank you. The same thing that people are doing today. The same thing that teenagers are doing today. 
Same thing that young adults are doing today. Same thing that senior men and women are doing today. They are saying, I am going to go my way. I don't want anybody telling me how to live. I don't want God's blueprint. No matter how good you may say it is, no thank you, I will decide for myself. And as a result of that, the God-prescribed roles for husband and wife were turned upside down. Adam and Eve both, when you read Genesis chapter 3, the tumble, you find them behaving in perverted ways. Not the way that God prescribed and ordained them to do. But once they fell into this fog of seduction, they began to behave in a perverted way that turned their roles upside down. So, in our text, here's what you need to see before we get to the the, the, the outline of how we're going to approach this. Here's what you need to see. The text that we read this morning is God saying this. He is saying first to Eve, Eve, as a result of your sin, as a result of your disobedience, as a result of you saying, no, thank you, I'm going to go my own way. As a result of that, Eve's created role as a helper fit for her husband will now be distorted into a desire to control her husband. That's what we're reading in verse 16 when it says, your desire shall be for your husband. God is saying, because of what you have done, your role as a helper now has been perverted. You've twisted it. And now you're going to seek to control your husband. But then, the very next line says, and he shall rule over you. Now, what is that? God is saying that Adam's distortion of his God-prescribed role is going to play out through dominating his wife unkindly, even cruelly at times, for his own selfish gratification. That the husband, instead of being a lover, will now be a taskmaster. He will be more of a critic than an admirer. This is the results of the event. These are the results of the fall. It's important we see that because our vows to love and to cherish one another faces an opposing force. When we stand before one another and we make these vows and we're sincere about it, we have to understand what's going on. The opposing force of the wife's grasping desire and the husband's oppressive rule. Unredeemed, these things are vicious forces that attack the integrity of a marriage. And the result is this. We see it today. Defiant feminism and arrogant patriarchy. That's what we see today in the 21st century. Why do we see defiant feminism, arrogant patriarchy? Why do we see that? Why do we see men and women behaving in the way they do? It is because of this event. And I think, uh, I, heard a, I heard a preacher say that every wedding he does, he tells this analogy. I think it's great. He said, think of an old bridge over a stream. Imagine that there are several structural defects in the bridge that are hard to see. There may be hairline fractures that a very close inspection would reveal, but to the naked eye, there's nothing wrong. But now see a 10-ton Mack truck drive onto the bridge. What will happen? The pressure from the weight of the truck will open those hairline fractures so they can be seen. 
The structural defects will be exposed for all to see because of the strain the truck puts on the bridge. Suddenly, you can see where all the flaws are. The truck didn't create the weaknesses. It revealed them. Now, you should be asking, why in the world would a preacher use that analogy at a wedding? It doesn't seem to fit. Well, here's what he said. When you get married, your spouse is a big truck driving right through your heart. Marriage brings out the worst in you. It doesn't create your weaknesses, though you may blame your spouse for your blow-ups. It reveals them. See, I think that's a great analogy that supports verse 16. That, that big truck of the wife or that big truck of the husband driving into your heart. And because of verse 16, all those fractures now are going to show up. It's going to, it's going to, they're going to come out. You're going, you're going to see them. So what's the answer? What is the answer? Well, according to the Bible, only the gospel of Jesus Christ can free us from this power struggle between a husband and a wife and restore the romance, the beauty, and the joy, and the harmony God intended. So having identified why marriage is hard, what must we do? Now, I want you to listen closely because we're going to talk about what we're going to do. But look, I don't, I don't, look, I think it would be wrong for me to stand here and say, all right, here, here are five things to help your marriage. Or here's eight little tips for your marriage. Look, when I say, what must we do? What I'm really saying is, we must embrace what God has done. It's a huge difference. In other words, we don't come to church, go, give me, give me some little tidbits so I can run out and, and, and start implementing these. No, we better look to God. We better look and see what he's done. What, he, what has he provided? What has he, what has he done to change the effects? What has he done? We need to look to that. And so that's what I want to point you to this morning. The first thing I want you to look at is this. We must avoid God avoidance. Now, this applies to everybody here, but I'm talking about why is marriage so hard. With marriage being so hard, the first thing we must do is we must avoid God avoidance. Now, why would we put it that way? Well, what we see in Genesis chapter 3 is, again, Adam and Eve disobeyed God's blueprint for blessing. God had said, here, here's what you can eat. And you can eat from all of the trees of the garden except for this one. And that happened to be the one that they ate from. And things went south. And then what happens is, notice, first they avoid God's blueprint. First they say, nope, nope. Secondly, once their eyes are open, they are filled with shame and guilt. Now, how do we know guilt? Because they hid. They hid from God. Neurosis set in. You see, when you've done something wrong, you try to hide. You try to you know, seclude and get away. Adam and Eve, first, they, they, they avoid God by ignoring what he has said. Secondly, they hide from him. And what we're seeing in Genesis chapter 3, with Adam and Eve hid behind a tree, is a man and a woman trying to live in God's world while avoiding him. I mean, I'd love to take that one sentence and just talk for a while about that, but I'm not. But listen, what you, what you see in this world today are men and women, as a result of Genesis chapter 3, men and women who are trying to live in God's good world, enjoy God's good provisions, trying to find a place here all the while saying, no, thank you, God avoidance. And what's amazing here, and I did not see this when I was a teenager. I was brought up in church. I didn't see this. I didn't want to see it. I didn't see it then, but I see it now. What should be happening here is this. Adam and Eve, at this point, should be running to God. I mean, they should have stopped and said, we have messed up. We have messed up. 
God, we need you more than ever before. If we're ever going to find our way forward, we're going to have to have you. But that's not what happened. They didn't run to God. They ran from God. God avoidance. And what you have here is the beginning of all broken families that leave God out. All broken families, all broken marriages that leave God out is a result of God avoidance. Nothing is more natural in our fallen world than trying to build a happy marriage on a foundation of God avoidance. Nothing is more natural. But on the other hand, nothing is more destructive than trying to build a marriage on a foundation of God avoidance. See, this makes marriage hard. Why is marriage hard? First, God avoidance. God avoidance. You must avoid God avoidance. You've got to build a foundation upon God. So you say, I can hear someone say this. Look, I want a good marriage. I think all who are married, hopefully we would want a good marriage. And so you say, I want a good marriage. And you start thinking, you start thinking how that can happen. And I want to persuade you this morning that a foundation for a good marriage begins vertically before it begins horizontally. What do I mean? Simple picture. When we think of a good marriage, we think horizontally. If you'll do what you're supposed to do and I'll do what I'm supposed to do, if you'll keep it going, I'll keep it going, we'll make this thing work. We always think horizontally for a good marriage. And what I want to persuade you to is this. A good marriage is built on a foundation of a vertical approach first, then horizontal. Now, you are listening, and you ought to be going, why? Preacher, why? Tell me why. Here's why. We have to deal with what is driving our heart first. Who has the title of your heart? What has a hold of your heart? What is driving you? What drives you in life? What is the most important thing in all of life? We're talking about worship here, by the way. It's what worship is. You know, worship is what we, you know, what we look to, the most important thing in our life. That's what we pour our heart into, our life, into our resources, our money, everything. We have to deal first with what is driving us before we can ever deal with how we are reacting to one another. You are setting your spouse up for a tremendous life of misery. If you think a good marriage is just the horizontal plane. Horizontal, yes, but vertical first. Because when God is in his rightful place in your heart, then you are on your way to putting people in their rightful place. If you don't start there, you are going to put a tremendous burden upon your spouse that they cannot bear. They are not to be worshipped. God alone is to be worshipped. So first, why is marriage hard? God avoidance. So what must we do? We must avoid God avoidance. Number two, we must find freedom from the prison of living for ourselves. I was reading an article this week about secularism and uh, the fruit of secularism. What, what comes from secularism? So what is secularism? And today, today secularism means this. God-free space. God-free space. Uh, it means, okay, we're, we're going to have a society where God is not welcome. This religious stuff, 
these religious ideas, this idea of God. We, we don't want them because that causes problems and frictions among us. We don't always believe the same thing, and we, we, we get at odds with one another. And so we, we, we just want to have a secular society. And so, again, secular means God-free zone, all right? So here's the question in the article. It was, what is the fruit of secularism? And the answer that the author gave was this. It tends to make people more self-centered. Don't you think about that with me for a moment. A society, an environment where God is avoided, we don't want him, shut the door, lock the door, keep him out. The fruit that will come from that is self-centeredness. And when I read that, I, I was like, I wasn't surprised because the fruit of God avoidance is living for ourselves. Secularism, God avoidance, basically the same thing. But our first point this morning was Adam and Eve, they avoided God. So we must avoid God avoidance. And if we don't, what is the fruit? What is the fruit of God avoidance? It's living for ourselves. And according to God, this is something that we must be rescued from. It is not a blemish. It is not a barnacle on us. No, it is to the death of us if we're not rescued from this. How do we know? After the fall, in Genesis chapter 3, if you'll go back and read this, you will find God setting things in motion for restoration and reconciliation. And this includes sending his son, Jesus, on a rescue mission. I want you to see a verse. It's one of my favorite verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 15. And he died for all. Now, he would be Christ. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now, first thing, make a note of this verse. I want to help you here. Make a note of this verse. If you, if you are thinking, if you're the kind of person who thinks, I want to talk to people about Jesus, and I like a good segue, I like a verse that I could kind of lean on from time to time, this is it, folks, this is it. Because when you ask the average person why Christ died, oh, well, he, he died to save us from our sins. Okay. Uh, he died to show us a great example of sacrificial love. You know, there, there's a multitude of answers you will hear out there. But this verse nails it. He died for all that. Do you see that word? That. That word, that, is getting ready to tell us why he died. It doesn't say he died that we might have a happy life. He doesn't say that, Paul doesn't say he died that we might have the best life now. He doesn't say he died that we don't have any troubles and that all of our diseases will be healed and we'll, all, we'll, be, we'll, we'll dance right into glory with a glorified body without going through glorification. We'll just, you know, he doesn't know. He died that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him. I mean, what's that mean? But live for him who for their sake died and was raised. That verse is so wonderful because it, 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 it goes right to the center. It bores right down to the center of what is wrong with us. Christ died to set us free from living for ourselves. That is not a good thing. It is not a good thing for us to live for ourselves. And God saw this. It was a result of the fall. It was a result of God avoidance. God, get out of here. We're going to do it our way. And the fruit of it is we now live for ourselves, self-centered lives. And so now I want you to take that and let's pull it into marriage. Think about it this way. Imagine a man and a woman entering into marriage, living for themselves. On the wedding day, it doesn't look like that. Wedding day, everything is great. Everybody's happy and joyful and, and should be. 
But remember the cracks in the bridge. Remember? And then the spouse drives into the heart. And all of a sudden the load, the load. And the cracks begin to show up that this one is living for themselves and this one is living for themselves. And you can deny it all you want. (laughs) You can say, that don't sound like me. That's God's verdict upon us. That, that's the diagnosis. That's God, us walking into God's room and, and him saying, let me check you out. Well, okay, here's what's wrong with you. You live for yourself. You're self-centered. This is what our text is speaking of when it said, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. It's a struggle between two people wanting their own way, living for themselves. Marriage has now become a battlefield for control. And this is what makes marriage hard. And so you say, well, what can save us? You see that verse? He died. He gave his life sacrificially that those who live might no longer live for themselves. But what's the alternative? Live for him. Live for Jesus. Live for Jesus. You either live for yourself or you live for Jesus. You see, that's, that's the options we have. Now, what, why is that going to help us? Because, you know, you ought to ask that question Okay, well, you say that, but why should that help us? Well, it's because, one, Jesus is our Savior, okay? He saves us. He rescues us from this bondage and prison of living for ourselves. He frees us. We sang about it this morning. Chains are gone. We're free. And why is that important? Because we are prisoners of sin. And our sinful bent is we don't always want the right thing. We need to know that about it. We don't, we don't always want the right thing. And so we need to be saved. We need to be rescued. Our eyes need to be open spiritually so that now that as we have been set free, we live for Jesus and he will now teach us and empower us to want and do the right thing. What does the right thing look like? Well, here's what is said of Jesus in the New Testament. This is why we must follow him. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind, this attitude, this way of thinking among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, those who've been set free by Christ's sacrificial love, it sets us free to flourish sets us free to live for him and to carry into our marriages, carry into our relationships this wonderful aroma of self-sacrificial love. You see, we're set free from living for ourselves. We live for Christ. We put him first. What's the result? This beautiful, sweet aroma comes into our marriage and our relationships. Why? Because we're not living for ourselves. We're living for him. And how did he live? He lived self-sacrificially. One final thing. You know, first, we, we must avoid God avoidance. And secondly, we must be set free from the prison of living for ourselves. But finally, one last thing, and this may be the most helpful to leave here today with. And that is trust God as you live in the middle. This is really important. Please listen. Right after the event in Genesis chapter 3, God says something that is like, it's like being in Mammoth Cave, you know, when they take you in there and they shut off all the lights. And it's so dark, you cannot, literally cannot see your hand in front of your face. And 
It's like being in there and all of a sudden someone turning on this floodlight. In the darkness of Genesis chapter 3, the event, the fall, in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 we read these words. God says, here's what I'm going to do. He said, here's what I'm going to provide. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. This is between the serpent, Satan, and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. One important thing you need to know about that verse is theologians say this is the first promise of a coming redeemer, a savior. But what, but what do we need to see here? This for those, for those who look to God for his provision to rescue us, two things we need to know about those verses right there. Spiritual warfare will be a continuing reality in our lives. If you are a Christian, you can expect you have a target on you. Spiritual warfare will go on. In other words, just because, just because we've come to Jesus, just because we've been set free, doesn't mean there will not be ongoing hardship in our marriages, okay? So first, spiritual warfare will continue as a reality. And secondly, history will gradually move toward humanity's redemption in Christ, okay? Now, what's that mean? It means this. Adam and Eve, when God spoke this to Adam and Eve, they were living in the middle of God's promise and the fulfillment of it. Now listen closely because this will help. I know it will help. When Adam and Eve, as a married couple, heard this promise, they were living now in the middle, in between the promise and the fulfillment of the promise. They are living in what is called between the now and the not yet. Here's what I want you to understand. We, those of us who are married, okay, let's narrow it down to that. We who are married are married in the middle. We are married in between God's promises and the complete fulfillment of those promises. And marriage in the middle can get hard. So let me give you just a few bullet points and I'll be done. Trust God while you live in the middle. Friend, there's a lot of things that are in the Bible that are stated that have not met their fulfillment yet. One, one, one of the areas where people really get confused is on the matter of healing. They, they want to claim healing now, and they've got to claim it now. It's ours now. It's our right now. We can have it now. And friends, that is a dangerous position to hold. That, that somehow that our strong belief, our, the way we say it, and I, because I claimed it and I said it today, I made it happen today. No, you didn't. You are not God. You're not even close to God. God's the healer. And he makes promises. We've got to understand this. We don't understand this. We're going to be so messed up in our heads. He makes promises. And then there's the fulfillment of the promises. And we're in the middle. What does that mean? Number one. Understand that living in the middle means our full salvation is not yet complete. Therefore, we suffer. The Bible says you are saved, you are being saved, you will be saved. With language like that, folks, you've got to understand that though we are free in Jesus right now and we are wonderfully saved right now, our full, complete salvation is yet to come. And if you don't understand that, you're going to live a pretty frustrated Christian life. Because you're living in the middle. Number two, 
Because of this, don't demand from your marriage or your spouse what only God can provide. You're living in the middle. Don't look at your marriage as being the one and all thing. Don't look at your spouse as being your Savior, your Lord. You're living in the middle. And no matter how wonderful marriage can get, that is not the fulfillment of your greatest joy. When we see Jesus, when we see Jesus, when we are with him and there is no taint, no sight of sin anywhere, we will have the apex of our joy. In the meantime, we're living in the middle. Number three, a good marriage is the union of two good forgivers. While you're living in the middle, there's going to be many, many occasions in the need for mercy and forgiveness. A good marriage is the union of two good forgivers. Don't let your marriage rust out by the daily rain of little drops of unforgiveness. It's, it's, that's going to that's gonna be tough to do. How do you do it? You've got to press into the gospel. You've got to get up and you've got to remind yourself, look, I've given my Lord many reasons to walk away from me, yet he has remained faithful to me. He has loved me through good and bad he has remained committed with me, and therefore, you know, I'm going to extend because I've been shown such mercy and grace. I've been saturated with the gospel. I'm going to do that with God's help. I'm going to do that to my spouse. Finally, one last thing. We said trust God while living in the middle. That sounds kind of abstract. You said trust God. What do you mean, preacher? I mean this. Obey him. Obey him. Um, if God says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, that is not just a, a good idea. It is a command. When, when God says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Respect your husbands. That, again, that's a command. And it's a command from a God who knows best. A, you know, he's got this vantage point of seeing things that we don't. I was watching a, a video the other day of, of, of someone in a slip and fall situation, and I, I knew what was going to happen because I already knew the story. But I was watching the video, and in, in, in the real time, that video, you know, that person didn't know they were going to fall. But I could look at it from that standpoint and say, they're going to fall. And I, I was like, oh. <laughs> you know. And, and so God sees. He knows. We must trust him, obey him, walk with him while we're in the middle. Why? Final thing. Because he's the alpha and the omega. Remember what those words mean? Alpha, the beginning, omega. The end. He is the beginning and the end. Where are we at? In the middle, right? What does he say to those who are his who are in the middle? He says, I will be with you even until the end. Now, if we're in the middle and we're not at the end yet and he says, I will be with you, what does that mean? He's with us in the middle. Let's trust him. Let's not avoid him. Let's receive all of his provisions to help us to have the kind of marriage or relationships or whatever they may be that show forth the beauty of Christ's relationship between his church and himself.